Good evening, everyone. I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs, and we're happy to see all of you here this evening um, to meet our special guest, Dr. Susan Schneider. Um, actions have consequences, and consequences are important. However, I don't think uh, many of us knew that there's a science of consequences. In her new book, The Science of Consequences, How They Affect Genes, change the brain, and impact our world, Susan Schneider brings together research from many scientific fields to tell the story of how something so deceptively simple can help make sense of so much. The author Carol Tavris, in a note on the back of this book, um, had this to say about the science of consequences, and I quote, this engaging, thoroughly researched book could not be more timely or useful. Bringing the timeless contributions of B.F. Skinner into the 21st century, Schneider shows how the relationship between the brain and behavior is a two-way street, how change really happens, and why a proper understanding of consequences can improve our lives, relationships, and society, end quote. Dr. Schneider is a biopsychologist who has 25 years' experience of research and scholarship in the science of consequences and nature-nurture relations. She is currently a visiting scholar at the University of the Pacific in California. Um, the Science of Consequences is her first book, and it has been named a Scientific American Book Club selection. Please join me in giving a good Baltimore welcome to Dr. Susan Schneider. Thank you very much for that introduction, Judy. It's a great pleasure to be here. As you can tell from the title of my book, this science covers a lot of ground. That's because consequences do too. They're everywhere, influencing us every day, whether we realize it or not, whether we want them to or not. A consequence is any outcome that depends on a behavior. For example, when you turn your head to look out the window. You can enjoy the view as a result of that behavior. It's a consequence for it. It's an outcome that depends upon it. Similarly, working for a paycheck. Turning on the tube to enjoy your favorite program. Playing with your puppy. And in conversation, mutually reinforcing consequences. Ideally, anyway. Just as consequences come in many shapes and forms, they come on a variety of dimensions. These are just a few examples. The bottom two may require some additional explanation. The chance to go dancing, that may frequently be reinforcing in itself because that behavior of dancing is intrinsically reinforcing. Something like a paycheck would be an extrinsic or outside consequence. And extensive research has demonstrated that we can be influenced by the consequences for what we do, even when we're not consciously aware of it. Consequences are frequently signaled. When you go fishing, for example, you might have learned that when you see a bunch of little fish jumping, that's a signal 
that you're more likely to get a strike if you cast your lure in that area. So quite frequently, consequences have signals. Even when you do cast your lure in that area, though, chances are not every cast is going to produce a strike. There isn't a one-to-one relationship between behavior and consequences. Instead, you might have to cast five times or 35 times before you get a strike. This is called a schedule of consequences. In this case, it's a work-based schedule because you have to cast every time. And it's variable because you don't know how many times you're going to have to cast to actually get a strike. So a variable work-based schedule, and it turns out this is quite a common relationship between behavior and consequences in everyday life too. Reading the newspaper, whether online or the old-fashioned way, You might have to kind of scan through several articles until you find one that's rewarding, but eventually you will. That also is a variable work-based schedule, and so is playing the slots. Not every lever pull pays off, but eventually you will get a payoff. This schedule of consequences tends to produce a very similar behavior pattern, relatively high steady rate of behavior across a range of people, and a range of species. And there are many different schedules of consequences, each producing a characteristic behavior pattern, and there are many applications of this part of the science of consequences. And yet, we're experiencing these schedules every day, and many of us are totally unaware of them. We often are frequently, we're frequently more aware of the way that delays are a part of consequences. We, want, we may work for a consequence, but not all consequences come immediately after we do the behavior. Quite frequently, there may be smaller, sooner consequences and then larger, later consequences as well. And this applies on a societal level as well as on an individual level. Overfishing is a tragic example of smaller, sooner versus larger, later. Which is going to win out? In this example, we're looking at the cod catch for the Grand Banks fishery off the northeast coast of North America. There it is. And this was a reliable resource for centuries. This graph begins in 1850. You can see there is at first a rather gradual increase in the catch over time. And then in the 1960s, wow, More fishing boats using higher-tech fishing methods meant a lot more fish being caught. And, of course, the immediate incentive for the fishing boats out there is just to catch as many fish as they can. But what might the later delayed consequences be for that fishery? If you keep on following the years, you can see that there is a precipitous drop, and in 1992, the fishery completely crashed. It is now 21 years later, and that fishery has still not recovered, and many experts think that it never will. We have permanently altered that ecosystem with, of course, devastating consequences for that fishery. So smaller, sooner, larger, later, we don't always make the wise choice. In this case, through most of this period, this fishery was self-regulated, which, as is too often the case, essentially means not regulated. Everyone could could just keep on catching as much as they wanted. 
and make the immediate short-term profit. When do you think that effective regulations with actual consequences for breaking them towards sustainability actually got passed? And the fishery crashed in 1992. Does anyone want to guess? And I'm going to switch to this so I can move around. Anyone want to guess? Fishery crashed in 1992. When did effective regulations finally get passed? <laughs> You're very close, actually. Uh, some people guess in the 2000s, I find. Uh, it's not quite that bleak, but, but it's close. The, the regulations were passed in 1992 after the fishery had crashed, and it was too late. On an individual basis, again, many of us all know too well, we face these smaller sooners versus larger later consequences. And a delayed consequence may have great value later on, but that delay reduces its current value in effect. It's just harder to make the wiser choice when you've got an immediate reinforcer like a brownie for lunch, you know, sitting there in the cafeteria line. You may want to lose weight or maintain a healthy weight. It's hard to turn down the immediate reward. However, using this science, we can improve our odds. This impulsivity challenge starts young. Many of you may have heard of Walter Mischel's classic series of studies with four-year-olds in a room alone with a marshmallow. And they were told that they could either wait 15 minutes and get two marshmallows, or they could take the one marshmallow. Four-year-olds have a big challenge with this. Very few of them actually waited the 15 minutes. But years later, Michelle found, kids who had waited longer, even 10 minutes compared to 5 minutes, for example, other things being equal, did better on their college prep exams like the SAT. And we just know from our own experience that this ability to have self-control and wait for that larger later consequence is very valuable in many aspects of our lives. So Michelle and many others have developed ways of helping ourselves achieve that larger later goal, and these methods work for kids and for adults alike. And many of them involve consequences and are based at least in part on the science. This is a, an example. You could see how these involve consequences. All of these methods have extensive research support. If we have time in the Q&A, I would be glad to go into more detail. Okay, so my book has two themes. First, consequences are everywhere, and there is a science that applies to them which has been around for over a century now. It has many, many benefits. Second, equally important, I think, this ability to be influenced by the consequences for what we do is an important part of the flexibility in the larger nature and nurture system. There are interactions everywhere, and I'm going to start with that. All of these nature-nurture factors work together. So we'll start with that and then with the everyday consequences. This is a diagram of just the dopamine system in a rat brain. Now, all mammalian brains have a lot of their basic structure in common. That's even true to a large extent across all vertebrate brains. You can see this is just 
the dopamine system. Dopamine is one of the neurotransmitters in the brain which is involved in learning from consequences. There are others as well. Just this one system for dopamine is very complex and involves many parts of the brain. It's a, it's a complex system. Uh, I should perhaps explain neurotransmitters transmit neural impulses across the little gaps between neurons. We know a lot about what happens when uh, these uh, neurotransmitters uh, operate and when, when learning from consequences uh, actually occurs, it changes the brain in predictable ways. And that's the case even at, okay, there we go, the individual neural level up there in the upper right, learning from consequences causes neurochemical changes such as long-term potentiation, which makes connections between neurons faster. Pleasure centers, by the way, are a little more complex than they sound. They are part of the dopamine system. We will go to them right now in more detail. When you enjoy music, get money, or gaze at a beautiful face, this is Lauren Bacall, or experience a wide range of other positive reinforcers, similar activation takes place in your pleasure centers. And that is the case across individual people and across a wide range of animal species. Now, turn it around. Insert a teeny micro-electrode in the pleasure center, and all of these species and many more will work for the opportunity to get that stimulation. As you can see, this includes people and even invertebrates like snails. Let's look now at what happens with genetic activity and learning from consequences. You may have a gene, and if during your lifetime it's never transcribed to produce the protein that it codes for, as far as you're concerned, you may as well not have it. These proteins then go out and do things in the body. So the ability to turn genes on and off to produce their proteins or to stop producing them is a really critical part of the genetic system. We now know of many hundreds of examples where behavior or other environmental factors, such as signals for consequences, can turn genes on and off. I've chosen these three examples because they've all been demonstrated in people as well as in other animal species, and they all involve learning from consequences. Just looking at the last example, exercise. Why do we do it? You might want to avoid nagging by your spouse. That's a consequence. You might just enjoy exercise. You might be trying to lose weight, those larger laters, or just to get from point A to point B. It's a consequence-influenced behavior. Once you do exercise, about two hours later, this gene gets activated as a result, and it adjusts the metabolism in those muscles. You can, in effect, turn on this gene at will. It's a system. I hope you're getting that idea. This series of uh, experiments, I think, uh, just demonstrates this uh, in the best way that I know because it involves almost everything. This is a photo of rhesus monkeys in the wild in India. Steve Sumi had a captive colony in a naturalistic setting where he was able to watch young rhesus monkeys as they developed when they were reared either by mothers who were unrelated to them, foster mothers, or by each other. 
Now, that is not a good idea for monkeys any more than it would be for people. The focus of this study was this gene. Serotonin is another of those neurotransmitters involved in learning from consequences and in emotion as well, behavior and emotion. This is a gene that people have as well as these rhesus monkeys. And the short form has long been considered to be problematic, bad. As it turns out, for monkeys who were reared by each other, there were indeed many problems. Those who had the short gene form, given the smaller sooner versus a larger later choice between two rewards, they went for the smaller sooner. They were impulsive. That's not wise. They were more likely to be aggressive. They were more likely to find alcohol reinforcing and they did not do well in the troops' dominance hierarchy. But look at this. Illustrating the complexities of the system and the very unexpected interactions you can get, that same short gene form, other things being equal, was beneficial when the young monkeys were reared by mothers. They were less likely to be, to be impulsive. They were less likely to find alcohol reinforcing, etc. It's a system. Extensive research shows, as I think we can all relate to, that being impulsive or being aggressive, these are behaviors that are influenced by consequences as well as all of these other factors. Dominance hierarchies and parenting also involve plenty of consequences. Am I going too fast? I'm sorry. I'm so, okay. We're, we're being signed. Okay, right. Okay. Oh, all right. So it's a system. I'm going to focus now just on the neurophysiology and some of the applications of that. In this study, uh, there were acrobatic rats who had to negotiate an obstacle course to get to a reward at the end of a runway. Then in the second group of rats... They exercised just as much. They went down the runway, too. They got a reward at the end, but they didn't have to learn to negotiate the obstacle course. So, so they were not learning from consequences, or at least not nearly as much. And then in that bottom group, they just stayed in their home environment. The researchers then looked at the motor cortex, which is a part of the brain that underlies learning when there's movement involved, motor learning. And you can see, let me switch here. All right. This top group is the acrobatic group. We're looking at the number of synapses per neuron. And the acrobatic group starts out at about 7,000, just like the others. But wow, with all that extra learning, they end up with about 9,000 synapses per neuron. By the way, this is pretty characteristic for people as well. It sounds like a lot, doesn't it? <laughs> it is a lot. The other two groups stayed at their initial level. And this kind of research has been replicated many times now. Learning from consequences reliably creates new synapses in the brain. And that is the case for people as well as for many other animal species. And here is a study showing these kinds of uh, changes, this kind of flexibility in people. In this study, everybody was learning Braille. Now, that's a touch task, and they were spending many hours a day intensively learning Braille. All right. 
uh, people in the study were randomly assigned to two groups. In one, people were blindfolded for 24 hours a day for five days. The other just behaved normally. In this graph, we're looking at fMRI, a measure of brain activity in the visual cortex, which normally handles vision. Now, what's going on with the people who are blindfolded for 24 hours a day for five days? There's no visual input getting to the visual cortex. We're looking at the difference in brain activity then between the two groups, and by the end of the fifth day, look at that. The visual cortex is starting to handle touch. These people are working on Braille, they're getting the fMRI measure, and for the people who've been blindfolded, there's this kind of flexibility. And we now know that this is surprisingly common in people and in other animal species, that different parts of the brain can cover for each other. In fact, people who are blind from birth or from a very young age routinely have their visual cortex handling other sense modalities or other uh, processing. Now, this last, this last graph, I'll wait for the change over here. At that point, uh, the blindfolded group had had the blindfolds removed for one day, and just in that short amount of time, we see there's no statistically significant difference anymore between the two groups. So the speed of the change is also quite impressive. And there are some wonderful applications made possible by this brain flexibility and by applying what we know about the science of consequences to take advantage of that flexibility. Here, for example, we're looking at a new therapy for stroke, which has been called revolutionary by the American Stroke Association. After a stroke, people frequently get paralyzed on one side of their bodies. But nearly everyone either re regains or retains at least a small amount of residual motion in their afflicted arm, for example. I'll try and slow down a little. Okay, thank you. Uh, this is a measure on using a standardized rating scale of arm use. The two groups in this study started out matched for their degree of initial disability in arm use. One group got the new therapy, which is called constraint-induced movement therapy. In that therapy, the good arm is constrained so people can't use it. That makes the consequences for using the bad arm more powerful. Then, taking advantage of what we know about the science of consequences, systematic shaping using positive reinforcement is used to build on that residual motion in the afflicted arm so that people start using it more. And did they ever start using it more? As you can see, there's a big increase in their ability to move the bad arm. This is just over two weeks of intensive training. This is a maintenance period of a month, and they maintain that skill very well. Two years later, they've lost some ground, but not much really, and they're still way above the control group, which was getting a therapy, but it was one of the older therapies for stroke, which simply did not have much effect. This study has been replicated many times now. And in addition, studies have demonstrated changes in the brain caused by learning from consequences in this way. So it's really helping a lot of people. If that sounds like science fiction, wait till you hear this. In this study, 
two rhesus monkeys learn to play a video game, essentially. And by the way, video games are sometimes used in zoos for apes and monkeys as a form of behavioral enrichment. They do find that frequently, intrinsically reinforcing, kind of like we do. So the task in this case was to move a cursor on a screen by moving a joystick, as you see in the diagram, and to track a moving object. And they also got a juice reward for becoming more proficient at playing the game. Both monkeys did quite well. Now, they had an array of those teeny microelectrodes inserted in parts of their brain. And while they were moving the joystick and learning to play the game, the computer was tracking their brain activity patterns. There we go. And then the joystick was removed. Now, in order to play the game and to get the juice reward, the monkeys had to think about moving the cursor on the screen. Both monkeys soon stopped using their arms to uh, stop, stop moving their arms. Again, there was no joystick there. And both monkeys successfully made the transition and were able to move the cursor on the screen and do well with the game just with their thoughts. Rats succeeded in a simpler version of this task, and the next step was to use this with people. This is a quote from the first recipient of this brain gate implant. His apartment was set up so that not only his computer could be controlled with his thoughts in this way, but several other devices. And it was a marvelously empowering thing. One woman now has had this brain gate implant for five years. There are many biomedical applications. Not surprisingly then, the science of consequences also has many applications for psychological conditions. And I only have time to give you a few of the many examples. I also want to say right away, just like consequences are everywhere in everyday life, they're everywhere in treatment too. Some approaches are more directly based on the science than others, and these are the ones I'm going to focus on in this slide. Behavioral activation therapy, for example, is very directly based on this science, and in a statistical meta-analyses, it is considered to be uh, well-established, one of the standard evidence-based approaches for treating depression. Now, what happens in depression? Things that used to be reinforcing no longer are. There's other things happening too, of course, but that is one of the chief diagnostic criteria. In this therapy, one of the key components is simply keeping people doing things that used to be reinforcing, such as exercising, socializing, uh, reading, things like that. Okay. And this therapy has a lot of success, not only with mildly depressed people, but even with severely depressed patients in a mental institution. Anytime you're addicted to anything, that substance becomes a powerful reward. Again, all the treatments involve consequences. Many are based on the science to some extent. One that's had a lot of research support is called contingency management. It is a positive reinforcement-based approach to try and reward people for getting clean of cocaine or heroin, for example, and then to provide better alternatives so they can enjoy natural reinforcers 
for being drug free. That sometimes entails giving them job skills and access to jobs. These are often people who don't have many reinforcers available in their lives apart from drugs. And I know people who do this kind of work too, you know, it just breaks your heart sometimes. So this therapy has a lot of evidence behind it uh, and in fact it has been endorsed by the English National Health Service. For my final example in this category, autism, which is now being diagnosed in about one out of a hundred children around the world practically. So it's a huge problem. In the classic study, 1987, Lovas had kids who were given early intensive behavioral treatment beginning from when they were about three years old and had been diagnosed with autism spectrum disorders. This is a positive reinforcement-based approach again, uh, based largely on the science of consequences, and kids receive language training, social skills training, uh, academic training, etc. For 40 hours a week, they receive this training for four years in this study. At the end of that time, nearly half of the children in that group had gained over 30 IQ points. They could be mainstreamed or included, I guess is the current term, into regular classrooms. And years later, a follow-up study found most of those kids continued to be testing within the normal range. The other children in this group also benefited, but not as much. These findings have been replicated many times now, which is why, as you see, the Surgeon General and many other organizations have endorsed this approach or closely related approaches as the treatment of choice. Let's go back, though, to that original group. About half of the children, or nearly half, benefited so greatly. What about the other children? They also benefited, but not as much. They were not able to be mainstreamed. And the replications have found typically a third to a half of the children make these huge gains. The other children benefit, but not as much. Why the difference? Is it genes? Is it pesticides in the environment? Both of those factors have been suggested. We really don't know yet. It's a system. What we do know is that so far, the best way that we have of taking advantage of the flexibility that is in the system is with this treatment or closely related treatments. So language has consequences there and in everyday life, and let's switch to that now. I think this slide speaks for itself. But consequences start for language a lot earlier than that, even in the babbling stage that infants go through. Researchers have found, just observing parents naturally interacting with their youngsters, that they reward the babbling sounds that their kids are making. So in this classic study, 10 kids were randomly assigned to each group, and the researchers had fun with this. They rewarded either babbling sounds that were mainly consonant or babbling sounds that were mainly vowel, and only those categories, to see if then there would be a change in the babbling sounds as a result, if this was a reinforceable characteristic. And these babbling sounds were independently categorized by a separate observer as mainly vowel or mainly consonant. The reinforcer was smiling at the baby, 
patting the baby and making an approving sound. And we can see, oh dear. All right. Okay, this is the vowel group at top at the top here, and we're looking here at a graph of the difference between vowels and consonants. And there's almost an immediate effect that the vowel group does indeed start to produce more babbling sounds that are mainly vowel when that is the only kind of babbling sound that gets reinforced. This was the consonant group, so we see fewer vowels and more consonants, and the group in the middle had all babbling sounds rewarded, and there was no change. These findings have also been replicated many times now, most recently by a professor at Cornell using sonograms for more detail. A little later on in the language learning process, there's a large database of a mother and her daughter Eve interacting and audio taped while they were interacting during the period when Eve was learning language. One researcher did a very detailed analysis of these data and found many instances of these kinds of natural teaching up on the slide. And the basic grammatical sentence types were each experienced many times per day, let alone per month. And a case of mom saying a word, Eve repeating it, and mom approving in some way, reinforced imitation, occurred many times greater than expected from chance. So there is a lot of learning going on, learning from consequences. This very critical study built on these earlier studies, and this study by Hart and Risley is sometimes considered one of the most important and influential psychology studies of the 20th century. Hart and Risley began a Head Start program for disadvantaged kids entering at about age three and a half, and they noticed that the kids had significant differences in their language skills already at that age. And kids who started out behind had trouble catching up and staying caught up. So where were these meaningful differences coming from? They decided to investigate. They had all of these families that cooperated with them across a range of different backgrounds, 42 families. The kids were observed about one hour per month during a period when the parents and the children were naturally uh, interacting, so not during nap time. The kids started out at about eight to nine months, and they were followed right through when they were three years old. The observer also took notes in addition to audio taping these interactions. So there were a huge mass of data. The researchers found five critical factors in this language learning environment that were associated with later language success. Two of these factors were primarily structural, such as the range of vocabulary used by the parents. But three were primarily functional, meaning what was the function of what the kids said, what were the consequences. Those included guidance style, such as did the parents make demands or did they ask questions, setting the kids up for consequences. Feedback tone referred to whether it was positive or negative. More on that in a moment. And responsiveness simply measures whether the parents provided consequences when their children said something. Now, Hart and Risley were careful to point out that all the families were doing the best they could for their kids. But, as you might expect, the professional families 
we're more able to provide enriched environments. We can see that just with this measure of uh, the sheer volume of language. In the professional families, the kids on average were experiencing many more words just per hour. And that means many more learning opportunities than the kids in the welfare families. In the working class group, which was the third socioeconomic status group that Hart and Risley had in their study, that was the largest group, the kids experienced the whole range in between. And this turned out to be very encouraging because what made the difference for later language success was not socioeconomic status, not race, not gender, not birth order, and not family size. What made the difference were the five critical factors. This is a combined measure of the five critical factors, and we're looking at the correlation between that measure and results on the IQ test at age three and results on the standardized test of language skills six years later. The absolute maximum correlation you can get is one. Actually, you couldn't get that, though, because the test-to-retest reliability for both of these tests, the IQ and the language test, is only in the point eights. When you have a high correlation, that means that when one factor changes, the other also changes in the same direction. So kids who had a more enriched environment as measured by those five factors, simply did better on their IQ test and with their language skills. Imagine if we could give every child on this planet an enriched environment. Subsequent experimental studies have verified the importance of these five factors, and large-scale projects like Harlem Children's Zone, which I imagine many of you have heard of. How many of you have heard of Harlem Children's Zone? Can you raise your hands? Okay, so they are, there are some. Good. All right. They're taking advantage of these studies to provide enrichment to kids in disadvantaged backgrounds so that they don't get behind. And alternatively, for kids who are behind, to provide extra uh, help so that they can catch up. And these projects are having a lot of success. So it's very encouraging and empowering. There's a message here for all of us because it turns out that research from a number of different areas suggests that we all have a lot of potential that we're not taking advantage of. Just looking at IQ, for example, adding extra consequences and therefore more motivation to disadvantaged kids in particular can increase their IQ score by 10 points right off the bat. Good teaching has been demonstrated by quite a number of experiments to increase IQ, so does more teaching, and of course, more better nutrition makes a difference as well. That is uh, also well documented. The Flynn effect measures the same phenomenon over a much grander scale. In the 20th century, for many of the developed nations, uh, we saw big increases in the average IQ and the general population, such that over each decade, uh, there were gains of about three IQ points for decade after decade. That becomes very significant very quickly, such that at this point, 98% of us in this country do better on the IQ test than the average uh, test taker did a century ago. 
And that is largely, we think, because of better nutrition, public education, better education, computers, etc. We all have a lot of capability. I go into the basics of uh, this area, which is so empowering. How can we maximize our potential, and how can we, how can we use the science of consequences to help? But this book, uh, The Genius in All of Us, is focused entirely on these topics, and I do recommend it highly, and I love this quote. Going back to feedback tone, which was one of Hart and Risley's five critical, fac critical factors, let's look at the positives to negatives ratio. Here again, all the parents are doing the best they can for their kids, but look at the average positives to negatives ratio for the, welfare for the families on assistance. On average, those kids were experiencing two negatives for every positive. Now that's discouraging for the kids, and we know from other research that can interfere with learning. And the professional families were getting a much higher ratio of positives to negatives. And again, the working class average is right in between. But if you look at the individual data, they cover that whole range from the average for the families on assistance to the average for the professional families. What made the difference, again, was the actual experience that the kids had. If it's good for language learning, you think it's good in other respects as well, such as parenting in general. And there is a lot of research suggesting that you do want to try for a reasonably high positives to negatives ratio. Catch them being good. When I was doing the research for my book, I was encouraged to see most of the popular parenting manuals, such as this excellent bestseller, How to Talk So Kids Will Listen, are doing a great job of conveying that message. What happens when kids go off the rails, such as violent teens. Gerald Patterson's research line is the best known in this area. Two of the critical factors he found when these kids were younger include the positives to negatives ratio. They simply did not get many appropriate behaviors being rewarded, and the parents were inconsistent in the consequences they provided. That turned out to be a recipe for disaster. If it's good for kids, it's good for us, too. Some of you may have seen this research being reported, including the so-called magic ratio of 5 to 1. I want to be careful here not to give the message that you always want to be positive and touchy-feely nice all the time, that there's never a place for negatives. It's not that simple. It's nuanced. In addition, I think it's pretty obvious there's no one magic ratio. But Gottman certainly found, looking at interactions among couples, that couples that had a very low positives to negatives ratio were likely to divorce. Couples who had higher ratios were far more likely to stay together. And his prediction accuracy was amazingly high in one study. So that got a lot of attention in the media, understandably. Really, at a certain level, this is a no-brainer. If couples are sniping and arguing and negative all the time, probably that relationship does have some troubles. But still, again, just just... Keeping in mind the importance of remembering all the things we like about our significant others and trying to be positive. Uh, I mean, how many of us can say that we get too many positives in our life? Not many, I think. Uh, it's just something 
that we should keep in mind perhaps more than we do uh, because the research really does support this message that you want it to be a reasonably high ratio. Some of the areas where research is very clear and supporting that I've shown on this slide. The Suzuki method on the upper right has been around for 50 years now, teaching kids to play musical instruments, and it is based on a high positives to negatives ratio. Prison rehabilitation is another good example. The workplace, and I have time for one example from the workplace. Then we will do a couple of animal examples, and then I will sum up. So we are getting toward the end. Pit mining is one of the most dangerous jobs in the world. In this graph, we're looking at the costs for accidents and injuries for two mines. This is a classic study from the 70s and 80s. Now, the costs in the beginning are actually pretty typical of the industry average. In the beginning, both mines are using a negative-based approach so that workers sometimes got in trouble if they broke the rules, but most of the time they could actually get away with it. And safety procedures do take time and effort, and they can be uncomfortable. So people don't always do them. After the dashed line, a positives approach was introduced. Groups and individuals got points for following safety procedures, suggesting new ones, etc. And the group consequence was important because, because that way workers had an extra incentive to support each other in doing the right thing. Now the points could be exchanged for goods at a special store and you can see that immediately there's a big drop in the accidents and injuries. Management loved this program because it paid for itself many times over, but workers liked it too. They liked getting the extra goods. Why not? They could see that the environment was safer, and they appreciated the more positive approach. So this was a win-win situation that quite possibly saved lives. It's good for people. It's good for animals, too. Positive reinforcement approaches based on the science of consequences are endorsed by the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, the ASPCA, the Humane Society, and many others. And there's many, many applications. Again, I can only give you a couple in this presentation. Suppose you want to give your monkeys at the zoo a blood test. Traditionally, a keeper would go in, grab a monkey, hold it kicking and screaming while another keeper jabbed it with a needle, and the results were no fun for anyone. This was very stressful. And if you look at the results for the stress hormone cortisol level in the blood test, it just skyrockets after a test given the traditional way. We can do better. Using positive reinforcement methods, we train a signal. When they hear the signal, the monkeys come voluntarily and present their arms, and they get rewarded in some way. It doesn't even need to be food. They also get pressure from something that's thin and needle-like, so it looks kind of like a real needle, but you don't break the skin, it's just pressure. And once the monkeys have learned this and are you know, accustomed to coming when they hear the signal and getting the reward, you can occasionally do a real blood test with a real needle, and they will tolerate that. And as you can see, there's essentially no change 
in the stress hormone levels. So this is a win-win also for the keepers as well as for the monkeys. And these sorts of methods have been adopted around the world now. In fact, people have been so inventive with these approaches that they can even train a whale to pee in the cup. These methods sometimes don't take very much time either. My last substantive slide before I sum up, I have to tell you about Chaser. Chaser is this female border collie up there, and there's this big pile of objects in front of her. Her retired college professor owner decided to make it his retirement project to teach Chaser as much language as she was willing to learn beyond the standard dog language like, you know, sit and stay. And she just kept going and going. You can see on a YouTube clip from Nova Science Now, Neil deGrasse Tyson, the host, randomly selects nine objects from this pile while Chaser and her owner are nowhere near so that there can be no unintended cues influencing Chaser. Then... Tyson takes the nine objects and hides them behind a sofa where there's a hidden camera. Chaser then comes in, and Tyson asks Chaser to bring him the objects by name, one by one. And you can see from the camera, she just goes right to the correct object each time and takes it to him and doesn't make a single mistake. In the study that I've included at the bottom of this slide, this was experimentally demonstrated under controlled scientific conditions. I think even more impressive than that, Chaser learned several different verbs, such as nose, take, and paw. And she was given tests in random order with three objects, again, randomly selected that she had never used those verbs with before. And in 14 trials, she didn't make a single mistake. She was able to use the right verb with the right noun, the right object. This arbitrary connection is what linguists call referential language. We used to think it was limited to people and great apes. Well, dogs can do it. And what was Chaser's reward for all of this learning? The chance to play with a ball. So this is a science that has many, many success stories. I think it's really important to remember what a major role it plays in the larger nature and nurture system. I wish I'd had more time to go into its many applications in education. Everyday self-control, wow, and these current electronic apps really take advantage of the power of positive reinforcement in very clever ways. There's been some good articles on that recently in the Atlantic Monthly and Scientific American. Catch them being good for parenting, this is huge and more positive workplaces, applications for biomedical and psychological conditions. I can go on and on. The message really is empowerment for all these consequences influencing us all the time. And there is a lot more information in my book and on my website and blog. Thank you very much. Yes. 
And the question concerned the uh, thought control experiment where monkeys were able to move a cursor with their thoughts. And the question was, uh, what was the causal uh, relationship? Right, okay, yes. It's a good question. Uh, The brain patterns, when the monkeys moved the joystick, were able to be picked up and followed and recognized in an orderly way by the computer program, basically. It, it took some doing, but there are some consistent patterns when the monkeys move the joysticks in different ways, and, and that, therefore, then when they thought about moving the joystick, and we know this from other research too, similar activation in the brain can take place when you think about doing something as when you actually do it. Now, it's not identical, but it's similar anyway. Yeah. There has to be some way of picking up. Oh, yes, yeah, yes. Okay. Yeah, exactly. The, the brain gate array was a, a, a series of teeny microelectrodes, like we talked about with the pleasure centers, painlessly inserted in the brain. Uh, again, that's what the quadriplegics uh, had that I talked about. The man who you know, first uh, had the brain gate implant had it for one year, and then one woman has had it for five years now. And because of the careful sighting of these and the monitoring by the computer of the brain activity, they are able to make thoughts translate into action. I mean, thoughts have consequences, but they're not always so obvious like they are in that case. Uh, does that help? Thank you are welcome. Pretty amazing stuff, isn't it? Yes. I haven't read the book, but from your lecture... Which senses do they use most? Taste, hearing, hearing or sight? What is it? The, the, the joystick, what do they go by sight? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. The question was, what uh, sense uh, were they using the most? Yes. And it, it turns out that it's motor control, such as in the motor cortex. When you move your muscles, then uh, there are... There are parts of the brain that coordinate to produce the movement, and when you learn uh, in a way that involves movement, that's called motor learning. And so, the, the, so exactly, the teeny microelectrodes were inserted in places like the motor cortex that we know are going to be related to those movements and thoughts about those movements. Ah. Okay, the question was whether it would be similar to like Pavlovian reflexes. That's a really good question. In fact, I have a chapter in the book on the relationship between learning from consequences and Pavlovian effects because they're interacting all the time. So um, I'm actually not expert enough on that research to know for sure. I suspect, though, that it may not have been a critical element. Certainly there's probably uh, reflexes involved at some point, but... The focus was, in this case, on learning by consequences, kind of standard motor learning, like those acrobatic rats, remember, having to learn to negotiate the obstacle course in order to get to the reward at the end of the runway. And so that was consequence-based learning, and that would be the kinds of parts of the brain that you would be wanting to look at, I believe, for this example with the brain gate implant and the quadriplegics in the monkeys. It's okay. Oh, it's, it's, I, I'm not surprised. It's <laughs> Thank you. This will be a very good study for the blind, I think. That's why I said senses of the taste. You, you know, you're exactly right. And you remember I presented... I can describe a blind person what the colors were, unless I said it tastes 
Red, it tastes like strawberry. And that will be, or, or it tastes like, not strawberry, but something, something picante, something hot. Red is like hot. Yes. Yellow is like hot. We can get some very interesting effects. I think uh, synesthesia is one of the psychological terms for these un- unanticipated uh, relationships between the senses that some people experience. Oh, there's so much that we're learning about the brain, but there's still so much more we have to learn. You're quite right. And the example I gave with the people learning Braille, perhaps, is also related to your question, because we see how different parts of the brain can take over for other parts to a much greater extent than neuroscientists used to think. Again, it's not unlimited by any means, but for people who are blind, we know that they do have quite frequently this kind of flexibility that is helping them to take more advantage of their other senses. So, exactly. Yeah. And again, quite frequently that's learning through consequences. Thank you very much for your answer. You're very welcome. Any other questions? Okay, uh, for I'm, first I'm, that I'm gentleman and then the gentleman in the back. So. I have another question following up this. Okay. Is the movement itself the consequence of reinforcing, or is it something else? And can you speed up <laughs> the learning by reinforcing uh, the movement? That's a really good question. It speaks to this difference between extrinsic reinforcement and intrinsic reinforcement where dancing quite frequently is intrinsically reinforcing for many of us. Now, what is it that makes dancing intrinsically reinforcing? There's where your question about Pavlov is part of what enters in. That's a whole... I I could speak for a long time just about that. Uh, It involves a lot of these factors interacting. uh, uh, And quite frequently there is an intrinsic reinforcement aspect and an extrinsic reinforcement aspect. And you might have immediate consequences, you might have delayed consequences. It's a heck of a muddle to figure out sometimes. But that's a really good point, that uh, you can certainly get both or either. I hope that kind of answered the question. Okay, thank you. And that, then the gentleman in the back, and then the gentleman in the middle. Okay, yes. It's for recording. Oh, okay. Okay, well, uh, Aldous Huxley, he wrote Brave New World, and I see uh, the world currently being more of a paradigm on that level than anything now. You made a positive comment about enriching people's lives and improving uh, how they see things and maybe intelligence. But when you're stuck in kind of a horrible position and you learn and you realize what a horrible position you're in, uh, could that also bring consequences? It most certainly does. When you look at the history of societies on this planet, though, I'm encouraged by the progress that we've made. Uh, At the end of my last chapter, which discusses consequences in society, I point out where we are now compared to where we were 100 years ago. And certainly there's still plenty of problems for us to work on in this this world, but we have made immense progress. I mean, you know, women didn't didn't even have the vote uh, in the United States uh, 100 years ago. Uh, and you know uh, uh, all of the problems with prejudice, uh, people dying in droves, you know from poverty. Uh, world War One was raging, and World War Two was to come. Uh, and the, the passenger pigeon had just become extinct. This was the most abundant bird that had ever existed on the planet, we believe, and it had been driven to extinction by human actions. It's kind of reminiscent of the overfishing. I mean, we still, in some respects, have a lot to learn about sustainability and helping people just to have a basic quality of life, but really 
we are doing better now than we were before. And of course, you go back a couple centuries before that, you know, and wow, there's just no comparison. So it, I think in the long view, one of the ways in which we are able to improve our lives and the lives of future generations and maintain biodiversity and things like that, the larger planetary context, is through the science of consequences, whether we've realized it or not. Now, it's certainly not the only way that we uh, try and help ourselves to maximize our potential and get quality of life, but it is an important part, I believe, of uh, how we accomplish that. And that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book, try and get the word out about all of these beneficial applications. Okay, and then there was a gentleman here who had a question. Hi. Hi. Um, do, you happen, do you happen to know how, if the brain actually, um, in this study, when the people were blindfolded for five days, 24 hours a day, did, was there any interest in finding out, in fact, if the brain was behaving differently from being put into a situation where it was devoid of being able to see any stimuli, visual stimuli, versus actually having physical damage ah. okay. to, to the eyes or to that part of the cortex. There's been extensive research on questions like that. That's a really good question. Just having a blindfold on for 24 hours a day for five days is different from having some kind of accident or congenital you know, problem with the normal system for vision. So you're exactly right. But... That being said, again, it's a system, as still flexibility, and uh, we're learning just recently, there was an article, I think, in Science News, something like that, about how when people who are blind but then are able to be given some sight using modern biomedical science, you know, do get the capability of vision, how does that work, and how do they learn to do things that we, who most of us in this room, are, you know, cited from birth, just completely take for granted. Is this something that we have to learn through consequences, or does it just come automatically? Uh, things like color and shape, basic visual characteristics. And it turns out, you know, that it does appear that learning from consequences is a very important part of making sense out of this new visual capability that you have. And it can happen very quickly. Again, we saw with the people uh, learning Braille that when they are deprived of visual input, wow, you know, so quickly the visual cortex stops handling vision since it's not getting any visual input and switches to something else. Well, for people who had been blind who can now see, uh, again, it doesn't take a whole lot of learning for them to be able to start categorizing and being able to have their perception work in more normal ways, but at first it does not. At first it's all kind of a blurry mess, basically, that they cannot organize or process in the way that normally sighted people can. I, I, does that kind of address your question? It, 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 it definitely overreaches what I, what I was trying to get at. But um, the other thing I wanted to ask is how soon was it? I didn't hear that in terms of what you were talking about in that particular study. I heard about the ending after the study was over. But how soon does the, does the, does the brain begin to make the switch? Like how quickly does it happen? Ah, okay. You say how quickly, but what is that in terms of quantity? Okay. Or quality in terms of it going to touch. 
Yeah, and that's a good question. And what exactly is it? Is it new synapses? Is it something more like long-term potentiation? Or, you know, what exactly is the mechanism? I, I, I think that they have made some progress in understanding that. Uh, I'm not an, again, you know, this book covers a wide range of topics. I'm an expert in some of them, but in many of them, I just, you know, worked really hard over a period of 10 years to understand that research and convey it in a, a readable way. And I don't remember all the details, so I'd have to look that up, I'd have to say. But that information should be available. I'm sure that there has been a lot of research devoted to looking at, you know, in more fine grain, what is happening and when, and how is it that this change can happen so quickly. Uh, In fact, I believe there is at least a couple of paragraphs in the original article that I cite in the book about that, saying that it wasn't... uh, new synapses, or at least not primarily new synapses. Uh, Alvaro Pasquale was the primary author of that study, uh, that he thought there must be other things going on because the speed of change was so great. You're welcome. Any other questions? Thank you, Dr. Schneider. Oh, there, there, there was one more, I guess. Uh, do, do we still have time? I began studying economics 30-some years ago. I don't want to say how long ago. (laughs) But we were taught basically that there was a rational economic actor who made decisions in sort of the classic model. Um, 30 years on, behavioral economics, which I I see in your notes you you cite, the influence of that. So what does this science have an effect on what we're doing, you know, Torsky and Kahneman, all those ten people? Yeah, absolutely. And delay discounting, for example. Yes. Uh, behavioral economics is really a very interdisciplinary area between psychologists, particularly those in the science of consequences, and economists. One of the founders is George Ainsley, who happens to be an acquaintance of mine. Uh, and uh, he is one of those who uh, developed the, the hyperbolic delay discounting equation, which is... Uh, a big uh, mathematical relationship in behavioral economics. The choice studies, again, people in my field like uh, uh, Jim Mazur, uh, important in trying to understand this at a more laboratory level where you can control a lot of the variables and the economists in the real world trying to connect that to the way things work in the laboratory. And, of course, it's on a much larger scale and much messier. But that idea of the the ideal rational economic actor, I think, we just know. Kahneman and Tversky, again, is a good example there. Uh, It's it's more complex than that, and we're certainly not always rational, I think. Uh, That's quite clear. Uh, But we are trying to do better. And by understanding how these things work and by being interdisciplinary, I think behavioral economics is a great example of how taking what we know from these different fields and trying to make the most of it uh, uh, really helps us get the bigger picture and come up with more ways of applying what we know to help, uh, to help us make more rational choices, for example. Thank you. You're welcome. Anyone else? Thank you, Dr. Schneider. And if you'll have a seat at the uh, table up there, um, I have books for sale for $20, and she'll be happy to sign them for you. So thank you again.